Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Go down to verse 14 for the sake of context. John 3, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Father, all the things that we have sang about in the special that Steve just sang, that that is our heart this morning. And I pray, Lord, that if that is not our heart, that you would make it so today. Take your word, Lord. Change lives, I pray, this day. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You have undoubtedly been on an elevator that bears his name. Otis elevators have been the industry standard for more than 150 years. And while Elisha Otis did not invent the elevator, he did devise the braking system that ensured its safety. At the time, elevators were little more than just open platforms, and the concern was that they would come apart and people would be seriously injured if the cable broke. So without a trustworthy braking system, elevators were earthbound and building heights were limited to a mere six stories. But with a reliable braking system, the sky was literally the limit. In fact, the braking system for elevators made modern skyscrapers possible. But initially, Otis had trouble selling the elevators. That is, until 1854, when he concocted a creative sales pitch at the Crystal Palace Exhibition in Manhattan. Every hour at that exhibition, which was the World's Fair of its day, Otis stepped into his machine. He gave an order to his assistant to cut the rope, sending him downward. The crowd held its collective breath. The brake kicked in, the elevator would stop, and Otis would announce, all safe, ladies and gentlemen, all safe. This story shows the critical difference between knowing about something or someone and putting your faith in something or someone. And that's really what these next two verses are going to be talking about. We have been following the conversation between Nicodemus Nicodemus and Jesus, and we pick up that conversation at verse 15. Jesus has just finished telling Nicodemus the story out of the book of Numbers about the bronze serpent that was on the pole. And the fact that whoever had been bitten by those vipers, all they had to look at was that bronze serpent, And they would be saved. In verse 14, Jesus tells Nicodemus, 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Which leads us into our next verse, verse 15. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 15 is the first of 15 references in John's Gospel to the important term, eternal life. In its essence, eternal life is the believer's participation in the everlasting life of Christ through his or her union with him. Now, Jesus defined eternal life in his high priestly prayer when he prayed to the Father in John 17, when he said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This teaches us that, that, that eternal life refers not only to the duration of existence, but also to the quality of life as contrasted with futility. Eternal life is a deepening and a growing experience. It can never be exhausted in any measurable span of time, but it introduces a totally new quality of life. You see, man is not primarily a physical being having a spiritual experience, but a spiritual being having a physical experience. The verb perish depicts the opposite of salvation. It means to fail completely of fulfilling God's purpose and consequently to be excluded forever from his fellowship. Its use here clearly implies that those without God are hopelessly confused in purpose, alienated from him in their affections, and futile in their efforts. Now, as we grow more and more to feel the limitations of 24 hours and the limitations of a seven-day week and the limitations of a month and the fact that there are only 12 months in a year through which to distribute the demands that are being made upon our time, we should marvel at the gift God has promised us and because of which we have an unshakable hope and a joyful delight within. Everything that we have ever loved that is good gets its origin from God. James says, All good and perfect gifts come down from God. The, the psalmist would say, At God's right hand are pleasures forevermore, and in his presence is fullness of joy. God is the source, the object, and the definition of everything that is good and delightful. When I think of heaven... I think of some of the most enjoyable things that have ever occurred to me in all of my life. Things like when I was six years old on a beautiful sunlit drenched Saturday morning in July. There I am working on my second bowl of cocoa puffs and watching Underdog on one of the two channels that we got. I was full of life and joy as the day awaited me. And the biggest dilemma of my day would, would be when my mother would call me in for a tuna fish sandwich when what I really wanted was peanut butter and jelly. That's real persecution for a six-year-old boy. <laughs> but whatever pure joys we have ever had only come from the hand of God and is an infinitesimal foretaste of the wonders and the joys of heaven. The Apostle Paul would later say, man, it is so wonderful, it would be wrong for me to even try to put it into words. 
And so when we think of those things, they're only good because they correspond with God as the creator of all that is pure, right, and delightful. Look at verse 16 with me. It's such an amazing verse, I broke it up into three sections for us to study. It begins, For God so loved the world. The fact that we are told God loves the world tells us something else about him. And that is, he has plenty of reason not to. What do I mean? Many verses in the Bible talk about God's anger against sin and against sinners. There's even a word commonly associated with God's anger, which is the word wrath. You've probably heard the phrase, the wrath of God. Or as Alistair Begg would say it, the wrath of God, which sounds so much cooler when he says it. But from cover to cover, the Bible demands a final judgment when all people will stand before God and give account of their lives. For example, the story of Noah's Ark records how God destroyed almost all people through a great flood because of their evil hearts and deeds. People literally died because they had rebelled against God. The Bible teaches that God consistently feels anger towards people who disobey him, ignore him, and take him for granted, and that he will, at the appointed time, punish them. So how do we make sense of this? The answer is this. At once and the same time, God feels both anger and love towards those who ignore him. Every parent knows what that's like. Anyone who's been romantically involved knows what it's like also to feel both anger and love towards a person. We are given the motive now as to why God would love the whole world. And that motive is love. Now one issue where I strongly disagree with five-point Calvinists is with their doctrine of limited atonement which basically means that Jesus only died for the elect. And yet the Bible clearly teaches here and in several other places that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. Now to me, the words any and all are pretty clear and completely inclusive. But God didn't love us in just words alone. The most important demonstration of God's love for sinners is Jesus, which leads us into our next phrase, that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus was a gift that was planned before the foundation of the world. God had always intended to give us his son. This is why so many verses in the Bible speak of God having put Jesus to death. Isaiah 53.10 speaks of the crucifixion 800 years before it took place, saying, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Peter also knew this truth. On the day of Pentecost, he spoke of Jesus, who was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. For the same reason, in the book of Revelation, 
It speaks of Jesus as a lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. The Apostle Paul will also say, thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. Now, sometimes doctors have actually transplanted the heart of a baboon into a child to save that child. But would you allow your child to give her heart to save a baboon? Honey, what I'm saying is we are all baboons. And some of us are more baboonish than others. Yes, Pastor Bill just made up another word. It says God gave his son, but who was responsible for the cross? Well, the Romans drove the nails. The Jews drove the Romans. But it was God who ultimately drove the entire situation. So that out of an evil thing, God in his sovereignty brought about the crucifixion for the sole purpose to provide uh, salvation for humanity so they could come to him and be forgiven. Giving Jesus to the world was an act of radical, unthinkable love. How unthinkable was it? Well, call to mind the person you love most in this world. Maybe your parent your child, your spouse, a friend, a brother, or sister. Now, call to mind the person you have the worst feelings about. Maybe you have an enemy. Maybe it's someone you work with, or a neighbor, or someone you've never even met, like a celebrity or a politician. Maybe it's me, I don't know. But you can't stand this person. Being around this person is like chewing sand. Now, suppose this person is in terrible need. Let's say they're in the hospital needing a kidney transplant in order to survive. Would you be willing to help that person in costly ways? Would you give thousands of dollars to help that person? Would you volunteer to donate a kidney? Would you ask the person you love most in the world to donate his or her kidney, or even more extreme. Would you ask the person you love most in the world to do this if you knew that the surgery would result in unthinkable suffering and death? Would you sacrifice the person you love most in this world to die so the person you dislike the most could live? Imagine saying goodbye to that person as they wheeled them through that hospital door and then seeing your enemy come out of that same door sometime later. Would you do that? Suppose the person you disliked the most was to be sentenced to an eternal place of torment. Suppose you could rescue that person by having the person you love most in the world to be beaten by sadistic soldiers mocked, spit upon, scourged, and then crucified to a wooden cross. Would you do that? This is what God did when he sent his son into the world. God did the unthinkable. The gift is the greatest evidence of his love for sinful mankind. It's the greatest evidence this morning 
of his love for you. God did that for you. The Bible says that at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, very rarely will someone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his love for us in this, that Christ died for sinners. That's what God did for us. It's interesting that John 3.16 is exactly 25 words in most English translation. And in these 25 words, Jesus communicates the Father's heart, the Father's plan, and the Father's will. His heart, he loved the world. His plan, he gave his only begotten Son. And his will, that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And although I know it's somewhat coincidental, I find it intriguing that in our English translation, the middle word of that verse is the word son. It is no coincidence, however, that those who have experienced God's presence most powerfully are those who have made the son the center of their lives. Likewise, our lives should revolve around the Son. Just as Jesus is the center of the greatest verse in all of Scripture, He must be central in our hearts and in our lives if they are to have meaning, purpose, and impact. This means that any passion, pursuit, or person in my life that cannot be centered on Jesus Christ should have no place in my life. And be sure of this, Jesus is the only way to salvation. The Bible says there is just one name under heaven by which man can be saved. But there are those who will say, I don't think I need Jesus. I'll just do my best and get to heaven on my own merits. Let me tell you a story to make clear to you what a terrible plan that is. Imagine for a moment that I am very close friends with your one and only son. Now, in the course of my life, I get way off track and I murder somebody. I go to court and I am sentenced to be electrocuted in the electric chair. But your son has stood with me throughout my entire life, no matter how vile I become. And so he does a crazy thing. He is brokenhearted about my situation And so he makes an appeal to the judge by asking, is there any possible way that Bill wouldn't have to die for this crime? The judge replies, well, the crime was committed, and so someone has to pay for it. And your son says, well, what if I paid? What if I took his place? Incredibly, the judge concedes and says, yes, then you would die, and he would go free. To everyone's astonishment, your son steps forward and says, and I'll do it, my life for his. And later that week, your son dies in the electric chair. Now, you're on a mission trip where no one could possibly reach you. And so when you found out that your son died, you only did that once you returned home. And you find out that now I am a free man. But to add to your grief, when I am interviewed on the 6 o'clock news, they ask me, how did you get free? 
I thought you were given the death penalty. And I puff out my chest in pride and I reply, well, they looked at the totality of my life and decided I wasn't so bad after all. Sure, I had done some inexcusable things, but overall I was a pretty good guy. Maybe better than most, and I was certainly better than Hitler. So they gave me a break which I quite frankly think that I deserved. You would think to yourself, my son gave his life for you, and you're telling others that yourself and you alone were the reason that you were released? And your heart would break again with both grief and outrage. So how do I get salvation then? What do I have to do? Our last phrase answers that. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Whoever believes in him. Now, simple belief rather than personal merit, this goes against all of our instincts about how to gain God's approval and his acceptance. We think that our good behavior precedes God's acceptance of us. But this verse teaches that God accepts accepts us by his mercy because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Not because of what we do to try to merit that acceptance. This is the gospel in a nutshell, the good news of Jesus Christ. We cannot earn God's approval. Instead, we receive God's approval through a gift in our belief in Christ. The great Puritan Richard Baxter remarked, I thank God for the word whosoever, because if God had said there is mercy for Richard Baxter, I am so vile a sinner that I would have thought he must have meant some other Richard Baxter. But when he says whosoever, I know that includes me, the worst of all Richard Baxters that have ever lived. J.R. Packer also has great insight on this. He writes, There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on the prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery can disillusion him about me. There is certainly great cause for humility in the thought that he sees all the twisted things about me that my fellow men do not see, and that he sees more corruption in me than I even see in myself. There is, however, equally great incentive to worship and love God in the thought that, for some unfathomable reason, he wants me as his child and has given his son to die for me in order to realize this purpose. Here's what we need to know. Faith is the indispensable channel of God's saving grace according to this and many other verses. Consequently, our understanding of John 3.16 will be incomplete until we deal with the nature of saving faith and seek to apply the truth of that to ourselves. Unfortunately, there's much confusion about the meaning of faith in our day simply because we often apply it to people who are very often untrustworthy. Every so often we will read detailed reports of some negotiations between labor and management 
in which the partners are encouraged to work out their demands in good faith. This means that each side is supposed to bargain honestly, believing that the other side is doing likewise. However, when the agreement is finally reached, the first thing they do is to draw up a detailed written agreement each of the parties must sign. Why? Well, obviously, because although each side wants to believe in the good faith of the other side, each also knows that people are untrustworthy and must therefore be guarded by written guarantees. The same recognition lies behind the formalities of the marriage ceremony, penalty clauses in building contracts, and many other things. But in regarding salvation, the contract is God's doing, and the keeping of it is his responsibility. The last thing I want us to see is the guarantee given to those who possess eternal life is that they will never perish. Now, I personally believe that true and verifiable salvation can never be lost. I believe true believers will be divinely preserved and will faithfully persevere to the end. Finally, God not only tells us that his love is great, infinite, and giving, but he also tells us that his love is unchangeable. This is perhaps the most wonderful aspect of the whole thing. The heart of the matter is that God loves us in such a way that nothing you or I can do ever alter it. This is a point made in one of the greatest stories in the Bible, the story of Hosea and his unfaithful wife, Gomer. Now, Hosea was a preacher, and one day the Lord came to him and said, Hosea, I want you to marry a woman who's going to prove to be unfaithful to you. You are going to love her, but she is going to continually turn from your love. Nevertheless, the more faithful she becomes, the more faithful and loving I want you to be. I want you to do this because I want to give Israel an illustration of how I love them. Your marriage will be like a pageant. You will play God. The woman will play the part of Israel. For I love Israel with an unchanging love, and yet she runs from me and takes other gods and other lovers. Well, the time came when the marriage happened and the events that God foretold also happened. Gomer eventually looked around and caught the eye of a stranger. Before long, she had left Hosea and he was alone. The time came, though, when she was living with a man who did not have the means to take care of her, and she was now hungry. Now, said God to Hosea, I want you to go to her and see that she gets the things she needs, because I take care of the people of Israel, even though they continually run away from me. So Hosea went and brought her groceries. He gave them to the man who was living with his wife, but Gomer did not even know that he had bought them. The Lord then says of Gomer and Israel, She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, and my oil and my drink. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold. Now I think this teaches, once again, if you are truly saved, you cannot run away from God's love successfully. You can run, 
but God pursues you. He steps before you and says, my child, I'm the one who's been providing for you all this time. Won't you stop running and allow me to take you to myself? Well, the final act of the drama was approaching. The time came when Gomer sank so low that she was sold as a slave in the city of Jerusalem. And God told Hosea to now go and buy her. Now, please know that slaves back then were always sold naked. Thus, when a beautiful woman was on sale, the men would bid freely and the bidding would always be high. Here was Gomer. Her clothes were taken off and the bidding began. Perhaps one man bid three pieces of silver. Another said five, ten, twelve, thirteen. Now the low bidders had dropped out when Hosea said fifteen pieces of silver. A voice from the back of the crowd said fifteen pieces of silver and a bushel of barley. But Hosea wouldn't be outbid. Fifteen pieces of silver and a bushel and a half of barley. And that won it. As a side note, Hosea put the silver and the barley for Gomer in a pile. And that's where you get the term, Gomer pile. I have been waiting all week to say that. But back to our story. <laughs> the auctioneer looked around for a higher bid. Sinani declared the slave is sold to Hosea for 15 pieces of silver and a bushel and a half of barley. So Hosea took his wife, whom he now owned, put her clothes on, and then led her away from the crowd. And you say, is that a true picture of God's love? Yes, it is. That is how God loves you this morning. Listen to what the Bible says about it. The Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a bushel of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days, and you must not be a prostitute or intimate with any man, and I will live with you. That is the greatness of the unchangeable love of God, that he loves us just like that. You see, we are slaves sold under the bondage of sin. We are the ones that were placed upon the world's auction block. The bidding of the world would go higher and higher. What am I to bid for this person's soul? At this point, Jesus Christ, the faithful bridegroom, enters a slave market of sin and bids the price of his blood. He clothed you with righteousness, and then he led you away, saying, You are to live with me many days, and you must not be intimate with anyone else, and I will come and live with you. You see, it's not just including Jesus on my Mount Rushmore of philosophers. Instead, it's forsaking all other claims of salvation and agreeing with God there is just one name under heaven by which a person may be saved. As we finish up this morning, I wonder, did Roland Stewart understand John 3.16?
you probably don't know the name, but you would probably recognize his screen character. He was the guy in the rainbow wig seen in the background at sporting events during the 70s. He would duck in and out of crowds with a sign that read John 3.16. For a while, he was almost a fixture on the screen at some football games during field goal attempts, being visible between the field goal posts. But tragically, by the 1990s, the only place he showed up was the 6 o'clock news. Why? Because he is now serving three consecutive life terms. He took a woman hostage. He fired off guns at airplanes. And he attempted to set off a bomb in a church. People were thinking, what? I thought he was a John 3.16 guy. You know, God so loved the world and all. Yeah, I thought so too. And to be fair, I don't know his whole story. But maybe when he back then when he was bobbing in and out of television coverage, trying to get others to embrace John 3.16, he wasn't even there himself. Sadly, he stands as a real-life illustration, not of the power and the life-changing ability of that verse, but of the real danger of choosing to only partially embrace it. You see, you can choose to read and understand something without choosing to make it fully your own. You can carry a sign, but not live by what it says. Let's not make that same mistake this morning. And as always, if you need to make that decision, please see me after service. And Father, we do thank you for that kind of love. Eternity will be too short for us to praise you for all that you have done for us. I pray, Father, that you would touch every heart in here and draw us in whatever ways we need to be drawn to yourself. We ask in Christ's name, amen.